John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we pray with great thanksgiving for giving us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus and in your word. And we pray as we read it and look at it together now, that we will see more of Jesus and behold his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me add my welcome to that of Mike's. It's great to see everyone. Uh, it's great to be celebrating Pentecost together. And what a great passage for Pentecost. Weddings are exciting events and important events. And it's so sad, isn't it, that during the virus, um, that lots of weddings have been either cancelled or postponed. And it's been a great sadness for many people. We've got a wedding due here at St Paul's in the 1st of August. And I've been in touch with the registrar this week, and we're still not sure quite what's going to happen. Well, in our Bible reading, Jesus is stepping into the public eye, and it is at a wedding. It starts badly, but as it unfolds, we have a wonderful picture uh, of a glorious future for his people, for us, and um, it's all made possible by Jesus. Look at the key verse, I think, verse three, 11. We read here that he reveals, he gives a glimpse of his glory. He reveals his true identity, the purpose 
for which he has come. And that's wonderful because the first chapter has said a lot about Jesus, hasn't it? We've been studying it together the last few weeks. And the writer John has taken us way back before creation and says that Jesus was there. And God, the word, he is God, the word who created all things and yet entered our dark world. The word became flesh and shone his light all around. A light which either draws people to himself or drives them away. I wonder which are you. In Jesus, we're told that God has made himself known, a knowable, a personal God. Well, more of that later. And John writes of witnesses to Jesus's identity. There's John the baptizer, the last of the Old Testament prophets, summing up the witness of all the prophets by testifying that Jesus is the light, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we noted those Old Testament references of a lamb dying as a substitute to bring about the redemption of God's people. And moreover, they say that Jesus is the one of whom the scriptures talk about, testify to. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And despite being the son of Joseph uh, of Nazareth, Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And agreeing with John the Baptist, they say he is the son of God. And so in chapter two, as Jesus begins his public ministry, he's got quite a lot to live up to, isn't he? Will he demonstrate that their testimonies are true? Well, in this miracle in Cana, he certainly does. In fact, now I'd be so bold as in some ways, here in our passage, he demonstrates all that we've been taught about Jesus so far, which shouldn't be a surprise because John has carefully chosen which miracles to include in his account. Right at the end of the book, in the last verse of the book, John says that Jesus did many other things. And if every one of them were written down, there would not be enough libraries in the world to hold all the books. That's my paraphrase. So why has he chosen what he has? Well, John, we've already noted, has told us his purpose in writing. John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, life in his name. So John wants us to see Jesus uh, as the very point to life. He is life. He is the best news in the world. So he sets out the evidence very carefully, John does, to make his case. And so he calls Jesus' miracles, generally he calls them signs, signs. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, used Jesus's miracles to demonstrate kingdom preaching. Uh, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, just as the scripture said would happen when God brought his kingdom. And that gave weight to Jesus's teaching. God's rule is here, and here is the evidence. Well, John's slightly different. He chooses these few miracles, and he calls them signs, because he sees them as symbols of deeper truths of God, of Jesus. Truths that reveal his glory, reveal who Jesus truly is and why he's come so that we might believe. Which is why 11 is, verse 11 is the key to the passage. What Jesus did here in Canaan, Galilee, it says, was the first of the signs 
which revealed his glory. And there seems to be a pattern actually in John. Uh, there's this, this sign in Cana, and then it's coupled with another sign at the end of chapter four in Cana, and that makes a little section. And then at the start of chapter five, there's a sign where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And then at the end of uh, in chapter nine, there's another healing on the Sabbath. So there's a second section. And then we have the sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead and after four days, and then the sign of Jesus, his death and resurrection. So there seems to be, uh, well, John's making patterns here, but let's see what this sign means, that we would see Jesus's glory. And I have three headings for you this morning. Firstly, a wedding fail. Secondly, the wedding foreseen. And thirdly, a bridegroom to follow. So let's look at that first one, a wedding fail. Here Jesus steps in to save the day, but very few know about it. At Cana, a small insignificant town near Nazareth, Jesus and his disciples are invited to this wedding along with his mother, and so it's probably a family wedding. But much of the community would come along to it. In fact, one of the disciples, Nathaniel, is from Cana. Now, weddings would go on for several days, and it was up to the bridegroom to provide the refreshments. But disaster! The wine's run out! Now, my in-depth knowledge of ancient Middle Eastern culture tells me that running out of wine at a wedding uh, was a 21st century equivalent to running out of wine at a wedding. Um, actually, it was probably worse, because when things go wrong in this way, it was not unheard of for the bride's family, parents, whatever, to sue the bridegroom, crippling him financially. But actually, in normal life as well, um, water was the staple drink of people, and very rarely did they have a treat, and here wine was a treat. It's not like the wine that we have today, uh, the strong stuff, um, but a weak, a weaker version. But it's a real treat and signified the celebration in hand. So to run out of it was pretty catastrophic. And Jesus' mother Mary has a role in the catering we see. And verse 11, this was the first of Jesus' miracles, so she probably hadn't seen him do one before, wasn't expecting anything like this, um, but turns to him. Um, in the absence of Joseph, she would have come to rely on Jesus as the eldest of her sons, and no doubt a very able son. So she turns to him in verse three, they have no more wine, she says to her son. And Jesus' answer is quite cold, isn't it? It's quite mysterious. Um, it's got an element of rebuke in it. Um, woman, perhaps more affectionate, sort of dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus feels this crisis is not his business. This is not what he is about. In other words, he recognizes his divine mission has begun. He is the word become flesh, and he's come to do the Father's will, not the will of humans. He's free from that pressure. And so here we see the relationship with his mother change, which must have been very hard for her. Family ties are now secondary compared to the divine mission. And she seems to understand, oh, she seems to understand this because a few minutes later, verse five, uh, she responds in faith. She submits to Jesus and is happy to leave it in his hands, calling the servants to obey his instructions. 
Anyway, let's spend some time back in verse four, because the reason for the gentle rebuke is given. My hour has not yet come. Now, this hour is his mission. And we see that as we go through John, he keeps mentioning the hour. For example, in chapter seven, he delays going to the feast because arrest is likely, explaining my time has not yet come. Then later at the feast, they try and seize him, but no one lays a hand on him. Why? Because my hour has not yet come. And similarly in chapter eight. But then we get to the Passover week, the week of his death, actually. The Gentiles are being introduced to the narrative and Jesus knows that it's now. He says, the hour has come, chapter 12, for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is Jesus's death. It's his resurrection. It's his exaltation. But also in places, it's the life that the cross achieves. This is his mission. Jesus has been sent into the world to fulfill. The eternal word has become flesh, dwells among us in order to die on a cross and be exalted three days later. So that those who trust in him will become, as we've read, children of God. So the hour of his glorification will also be horrific. But that hour has not yet come. And Jesus decides to use this wedding fail in this backwater of Cana to give us a glimpse of the hour that is about to come. Here, as the wine runs out, Jesus reveals his glory. But how? Well, my second title, the wedding foreseen, the wedding, a wedding fail, the wedding foreseen. Remember, these signs have deeper significance about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and the life he came in to inaugurate. Take a note of the stone jars in verse 6, representing about 100 to 150 gallons each. Um, I don't know, 850 bottles of wine. Uh, I can't do the math. I'll ask Tom later. But these massive jars were normally used for Jewish ceremonial washing, uh, cleansing. And you need a lot of water at a big event like this with stretching over so many days. Well, Jesus was about to transform the usage uh, from being for the law into one of abundant grace. Verse 7, he instructs the servants to fill them up with water and they obey. And the word used here indicates they drew the water from the well. And verse 7, they fill them up to the brim. A term perhaps indicating that the old law of purification is now finally fulfilled with this new water, this wine, representing the new order, replacing the old entirely. But what about this wine? Well, verse 8, Jesus commands the water is drawn out and taken to the master of the feast, the man looking after the whole occasion. He takes it, he tastes it, verse 9, and it is the most amazing wine ever. Verse 9, he calls the bridegroom. He can't grasp it. What has he been doing? He's broken with convention. He's serving the best at last. And the attention of the reader is taken away from the master of the ceremonies, is taken away from the wedding and the, the happy couple, perhaps, and it fixes on Jesus. He did this. Jesus made this happen. 
And it's a carefully chosen act to show us what Jesus brings. Again and again, the Old Testament speaks of the coming kingdom of God, a new age where the joy and the gladness that God brings is represented by new wine dripping from the hills, the mountains. We can read about that in Amos 9 or, or Joel 3 and beyond. A time where every jar will be filled with wine, says Jeremiah 13. And it goes on. But this is less about wine. Flowing wine, fine food and so on are just images of the promised new creation. The one that the scriptures have promised. The day of the Lord's Messiah. Indeed, why does John note the day? Verse 1. Did you notice that? John is so careful with what he writes and how he writes. No words are wasted. And there's a rare moment where he's counting the days. He's already referred back to the creation account in, in John chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember? In the beginning was the word. Now, as the historical testimony begins with the witness of John the Baptist, it's day one of God's new creation. Then in chapter 1, verse 29, it's the next day, day two. Verse 35, the next day, day three. Verse 43, the next day, day four. And then two, verse one, the third day. Adding to the others makes the seventh day, the Sabbath. This day is the day of rest when God finishes all his labors. The Sabbath is the goal of God's people, where a wedding, the wedding, takes place, where God and his people are reunited in that permanent loving relationship. And the scriptures have promised a feast, a new age of celebration and wealth, of the finest meats and wine. And it seems here then that the future, that, that future glory has been glimpsed. And some at this point like to refer back to the feast in Isaiah 25. Rich foods, aged wine, the shroud of death being swallowed up forever. But I can't help think of Psalm 23. Uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. This, is, this points not just to any old wedding, but the wedding. But every wedding must have a bridegroom. My third heading. A wedding fail, the wedding foreseen, and thirdly, a bridegroom to follow. Well, remember, the wine had run out. And whose fault was it? Well, it's a jolly nameless bridegroom, wasn't it? Soon everyone's going to find out. There's going to be a scandal. But Jesus steps into his shoes. He does the bridegroom's job. And verse 10 the bridegroom gets the credit. Only the servants and the disciples see what happened. But Jesus steps into his shoes. He acts on his behalf and the result was glorious. And I can't help think of those six water jars standing there, continuing reminding the people of their spiritual uncleanness before God. And now they're filled with a brim with new wine for feasting. And when the hour came, Jesus steps into our shoes, providing forgiveness for our sins and washing us clean, not just for temporarily on the outside, 
but permanently within. When it comes to the wedding, the marriage of God and his people, Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, there'll be more to say about this in John chapter 3, I'm sure, but in verse 29 of chapter 3, hear how John the Baptist speaks of the bridegroom Jesus. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, I'm sent ahead of him. Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. I must become greater. He must become greater, I must become less. John's basically saying, I'm the best man. Jesus is the groom. He's arrived. I rejoice. My joy is complete. And John's gospel contains many encounters between different people, um, encounters where Jesus holds out his hand and offers him relationship or her. People meeting and speaking with the word made flesh, being offered something transformational, being new creation. And in John chapter 4, we will see that one of these encounters with the woman at the well. Funnily enough, it's Jacob's well, where Jacob met his wife. He meets her, a, a wife at a well. Um, Isaac meets his wife at a well. Uh, so does Moses, actually. But uh, lots of love going on at the well. Um, but this woman, sitting at the well in a messed up marriage situation, is offered a relationship with God, which is God's design for all of us. If you have a Bible, or I'll put it up on the screen, perhaps turn to Isaiah 54. Um, John seems to regularly draw the mind to Isaiah, doesn't he? John the Baptist particularly leans on him. But verse 4 of chapter 54, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame, my people. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will, not, you will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. Your maker is your husband. And Isaiah 62, the Lord says to his people, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In the Bible, God does not describe himself as a stern head teacher or a school examiner or a strict father. Um, no, he's described in wonderful and intimate terms. Uh, Abba, father, dad, um, who sent his son, but also here, a husband a perfect husband holding out his hand that we might be his forever. Marry me, be mine. And there are many other Bible references that speak of God in this way. But as I close, let me read um, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John's testimony. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more pain, a death, mourning, crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. But what do you do with this? Well, the challenge is, isn't it, to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus, to taste the future that he brings. At a crisis in Cana, Jesus reveals his extraordinary truth about himself. He is God. He is the God who is to come to betroth himself to his people, offering us the most intimate relationship imaginable. The hour will come uh, when Jesus will wash us clean at the cross and we become his bride as we place our hand in his and join him at the feast. These things are written, says John, that you would believe this, that you would trust in him and have this wonderful, abundant, uh, flowing life in his name. And that's what the disciples start doing in verse 11. They, put that, they see the glory revealed and they begin to trust in their saviour. The bridegroom has arrived and he calls us to follow him. I hope you know this. I hope you've seen that the old laws, the rituals, the religious stuff has gone. Something that if God ever visited this earth, he'd put a stop to festivities and joy. But it can be the opposite, more the opposite. Jesus came to show us what this world is for, for this abundant joy, knowing God personally and forever. And on this point, I'm reminded of Luke 15. The elder son, he's standing outside the party, refusing to come in, counting up all the good things he has done for his father, while next door in the inside, he can hear the champagne corks popping. And he is, they are there to celebrate sins forgiven. The wayward son, the past has been forgotten. Don't be the elder son. You have been invited to the feast. Accept the forgiveness of Jesus and come in and enjoy. Enjoy the party. And Christian friends, let's take note of this joy. Uh, the life of a Christian is to be one of celebration as we enjoy relationship with the Lord Jesus. We work at it. We keep close to the shepherd. And we anticipate the feast to come. It doesn't mean being happy all the time. That's not what Jesus promises. He promises us hard times. But at the heart of it, the heart of our existence, is this abundant life. The Lord with his people. And looking forward to holding us physically again in that day to come. Let's pray. Let's pray together. few words from Revelation 19. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given to her to wear and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb these are the true words of god loving god we thank you for your invitation to us to feast with you forever 
And we thank you that Jesus, our lamb, our victorious lamb, has made it possible. Lord, fill us with the joy of this truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.